The Healthcare Quality Cast is powered by the Quality Coaching Company. If you'd like to work with us to earn your Lean Six Sigma for healthcare certification or partner with our innovative corporate training and coaching programs to successfully scale your continuous improvement initiatives, then click the link below to learn more and apply. Hey, quality people, welcome to the Healthcare Quality Cast. I'm your host, Jarvis Gray, and in this podcast, we spotlight today's most exciting and inspiring industry leaders. We dive deep into the career journeys of these leaders that work daily to improve quality, safety, and service outcomes for their patients, their family members, and their communities at large. Our mission is to provide motivation and direction to our listeners, encouraging you all to continue your efforts in improving the overall quality of healthcare. Now, let's meet today's quality guests. Thank you for joining in on another episode of the Healthcare Quality Cast. And today, I'm here with my guest, Natalie Ocean. Natalie, are you ready to share with some quality people? I absolutely am. Thank you for having me. All right, wonderful. Well, no, thank you for joining on. And um, Natalie, we love to start every show with getting our positive affirmations to really catch our momentum. So I'd love if you could share a favorite leadership quote or leadership mindset, but tell us why it appeals to you and how do you apply it on a daily basis? Yeah, I'd say there's a couple that come to mind, but one that always stands out to me that I always connect to is always advocate for service. And this is something that one of the leaders, when I was actually doing my administrative fellowship, we were in a, in a meeting um, trying to make some decisions around um, patient care. And they were like, okay, at the end of the day, let's just make sure that we're always advocating for service. And for me, that keeps me grounded in my why. Because um, sometimes you can get you know, tied up in the nuances of political landscape of healthcare or um, um, organizational priorities, et cetera. But at the end of the day, if it truly is about patient care, what is it that we have to do to make sure that we're addressing that and making sure that it's the highest quality possible? So I'd say advocate, always advocate for service. Perfect. I, I love that. And it, it resonates for me, Natalie. I've shared this story a few times on past episodes, but when I find myself leading project teams, at least pre-COVID when it was safe to gather and lead project teams, mm-hmm. um, I always keep a picture of my grandmother in my wallet. Mm-hmm. So when we get to the point of a project where we're talking about improvements, I'll pull the picture out and I'll put her right on the board so everybody could see it. Mm-hmm. And then I say, is that solution going to help my grandmother? Because she's mm-hmm. 83. She's going to be a patient sooner or later. Um, and so that's my version of what you just said, advocating for service and keeping the patient right there in the center. So yep. awesome. So I love that mindset. Um, let me move you into this next question. You, you mentioned, you know, your background from administrative fellow. I want to kind of get the, the full picture for everything that you have to offer. So I love if you could just take a few minutes, um, briefly describe uh, the current role in your organization, um, your professional background, and definitely what led you into this career path. Yeah, so I don't know if I could do it briefly because it is a long story, but I'll try to keep it to the highlights. But um, currently, I work as a chief operating officer for a Memphis-based healthcare tech startup called MedHall. And so we use uh, we have a technology platform that connects healthcare organizations to our network of specialized non-emergency medical transportation providers, essentially to help alleviate the challenge and gaps that patients, especially those that have special or unique mobility needs. And by that, I mean either in low-income areas. They may be wheelchair bound or stretcher bound, or they may have um, cognitive or physical disabilities that prevent them from traditional transportation options. And so we use our technology platform to help connect those organizations who otherwise may not be aware of those 
transportation resources so they can have a kind of a one-stop shop for scheduling and managing those rides for their patients. Um, in my role, I essentially um, am, a, am a jack of all trades. I have my hands in everything across the company, which is great, which is perfect for my personality type. Um, my professional background is in healthcare administration. So I have my, my, my MHA degree um, from the University of Memphis. And I've worked exclusively before Med Hall in academic medical center environments, um, developed a passion for healthcare quality during my fellowship and found that I do have a mindset for operations, which is interesting because I didn't really understand what operations was and everyone would throw that word out there. Um, but really having my hands in a bunch of different buckets and kind of seeing how things work together and impact one another really speaks to kind of my, the way that my brain works on a regular basis. Um, what led me into the career path um, so as a lot of people, I think, in, in the MHA uh, space, I started out in undergrad, wanting to be in healthcare, knowing that that's the industry that I wanted to be in, but assuming and limited to the idea that I had to be a clinician or a provider to be in that space. I knew that hospitals and, or, and healthcare is a business, but I didn't really understand the nuances or what roles that encompassed. So I went into undergrad thinking I was going to be a clinician. As much as I love science, it was not a good fit. Um, I could take a, a course over and over again, MCATs, I'm looking directly at them. I've taken the MCATs a couple times and before I kind of had a heart to heart with myself and realized that I needed to find a different route. Um, I actually, so I did undergrad in New Jersey. I went to Rutgers and my family at the time had just moved to Memphis, um, which is a really big jump because we're originally from Jersey. Um, but in moving to Memphis, I was still, you know, harboring on the fact that I wanted to be in healthcare, but not still not sure of the options. And so I actually ended up speaking to someone at one of the medical schools here. Um, and I actually ended up working at the school um, as a temp afterwards, just because I was like, I need to do something. I know some people here. Let me just start working and, as I'm figuring things out. And so um, I knew that being a clinician or being in med school probably wasn't the best fit for me. Found out about this MHA pathway. Um, learned also that if I became a full-time employee at the organization that I could get tuition assistance benefits. So I was like, absolutely. So I started applying for full-time roles because I was not going to go into debt any further for my education. Um, and so found the opportunity for me to get into a full-time role, found a school right down the street that was the only accredited school for MHA in the state. Um, so just my luck, everything lined up that way. And now it was just a matter of getting into the program, which I'll talk to you about later. Um, but getting into the grad school program was definitely a challenge. But once I did, I told myself I was going to take advantage of every opportunity presented to me, which kind of led me into learning about NASI. So I did the case competition through grad school um, both years. And also did, uh, after I graduated, did my fellowship in South Carolina um, in healthcare quality, fell in love with quality there, got credentialed as a certified, certified professional in healthcare quality. And yeah, I've, I feel like for me, I've been very agile in my career aspirations, which has led me into spaces that I didn't know existed or roles that I didn't know existed. Um, so yeah, I think it, it's been a lot of um, happenstance, but I think it's also been intentional because of the way that I've kind of approached things and the, the way that I kept myself grounded along the way as well. Well, you say, you say happenstance. I, I think what I took out of that was absolute hustle. Um, <laughs> that too. Found ways to make some opportunities happen. So I, I will say, um, I completely overlooked the Nasi connection. So um, I'm pretty heavy on Nasi here in Atlanta, where I'm based. And mm -hmm. I was just actually passed through Memphis for the first time ever uh, earlier this summer, taking a oh, trip nice. out to uh, Missouri. Yep. But um, no, Natalie, I, I want to give you just 
full respect, full recognition for everything like you just shared through your career path. And, and I mean this with respect, but I'll say, but you look so young. So <laughs> when I when I first came across your uh, your profile, I was like, she's not a COO. But um, but no, just, you know, everything you just shared. Love it. Um, I, I love to go off script and just ask if you could give us kind of a day in the life of uh, of a COO from your role. Again, it's non-traditional healthcare for what's typical highlighted on this podcast, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'd love, you know, walk us through a little bit more details about the work you guys are doing at MedHall and what does that look like for you um, as a COO role. But uh, again, I, I want to highlight what you said earlier is having an agility mindset with your career path. And that's really the take home of what I want to just pinpoint for our audience that plugs in with this conversation. Right. So I'll say, um, again, highlighting the fact that this is definitely non-traditional, especially for me. I had no, well, my career plan, I would say entrepreneurship or being in a startup was never anywhere on my path. So it's absolutely, I would first say, been a, a steep learning curve, but in the best of ways. I've learned a lot about technology, a lot about product development that I otherwise probably would not have because it's never been my you know, innate interest. But I would say my day-to-day, um, it varies, especially because we're such a small team still. We're about five people full-time with our team right now. And so there's a lot of everyone kind of putting their hands in everything. There's a lot of work being shared. I think we've gotten to the point now where we're beginning to mature a little bit, where we're able to define out people's roles a little bit more clearly and a little bit more definitively. But I think for me, regardless of the team size, I think I would still have that primary function of kind of overseeing all the different functional areas of the organization. Um, The other thing that I would say has been a, a steep learning curve or interesting for me to kind of take under my belt is team management. So as we're growing our team and as we're identifying resource needs or skills gaps, How do we then recruit and find the talent that we need to bring onto our team to help keep us moving in in those directions? So to a certain extent, yes, we want to be resourceful and we need to sometimes just figure things out on our own. But to also another certain extent, time is money and we often don't have the time to spend figuring things out. We we need to find someone quickly who can execute in the way that we need them to execute, whether it's in a part-time capacity or contract role capacity, or it truly is bringing someone in in full-time um, for us, the, a lot of the work that we're doing, uh, I'd say more uh, in real time, is related to our products. So we're um, doing a lot of product development type work as far as making enhancements to our product, identifying uh, additional features that we, need to, we may need to consider for the future, but also thinking of um, the current landscape. I think for us, COVID was, um, and I hate to say that we found a silver lining in it, but for us, COVID really helped re-emphasize for us the importance of our service because we found that as um, public transportation was shut down, especially in the very beginning when people didn't really know what was going on, public transportation was pretty much kind of canceled in a sense and ride sharing was kind of on halt because people weren't comfortable being around other people. And so those individuals who still needed to get to their appointments such as chemo or dialysis treatments, et cetera, where those things can't just stop or they can't transition to virtual, they still have to go to in-person visits. They still needed a way to get to and from their appointments and that's where they turned to MedHall for that kind of service. And so I think that was a big um, eye-opener for us because I don't think we, we knew what was important, but I think for us also seeing that other people recognize the importance was really great for us as well. Um, but also thinking of, you know, thinking of the different ways that we can um, have our service be uh, useful for others. So not only for individuals, but also for organizations and health systems, also for different kinds of disease or clinical states as well. 
Um, so there's always there's always a lot of learning, a lot of research, and a lot of trial and error, which I think is fun um, because I think for me I've always been um, I don't say that I'm a perfectionist, but I'm always I always want to know the right way to do something and go about it that way. But in this space, it's let's try it and see what happens, and if it doesn't work, that's okay because this is the space to do that, and we want to get as much of that trial done now so we can limit the amount of error that we come across later in the future. Perfect. No, I. Uh, I, again, appreciate you kind of going down that path with me because just for all of our listeners, which is a really good mix of uh, quality process improvement, strategy, data analytics types, mm -hmm. um, and healthcare leaders, you know, just letting them know there's there's a lot of healthcare outside of the walls of the hospitals or the clinic. Absolutely. And that's, um, that's really, again, what drew me in with your profile. And when I, you know, did my search on uh, MedHall, I was like, oh, that's different. And so again, it was a no-brainer for me to um, reach out, and so thankful that uh, that I got get this chance to spend a few minutes with you on the podcast. So um, let me move you into the next question, um, Natalie, and give you the heads up that this is something of a fan favorite. Uh, we've been calling it the dark place question, <laughs> where I would love if you could share with us, um, you know, a point in your healthcare career that you would consider your best moment of failure. Um, share with us what that moment was like or, you know, kind of the backstory, but most definitely share with us the lessons learned that you took from it. Yeah, ironically, I would say, well, maybe not ironically, but um, sometimes I think strangely enough, it would I would always say that it's me getting into grad school. Um, so I didn't have the best grades in undergrad. Um, I was I didn't know what I was doing, really. Um, but when I identified, like I said earlier, that I wanted to go to grad school and like this was the um, degree that I wanted to go after. The application process was definitely brutal for me. And I think, um, so the application cycle was annual. So if you did, when I didn't get in the first year, I had to wait for the next year. And it took me three cycles, which is three years to get in. Um, but it definitely taught me about my resilience and how I can get after things that I really want to get after or what things that I'm passionate about. But I will also say the biggest lesson I think for me was around communication etiquette. Um, I got to the it got to the point when I was I was just desperate for a yes and I I just refused to accept no as an answer um, and I kind of reached out to all of the faculty at the at the university that are, that was in the MHA department and just said hey I'm trying to you know I'm looking to uh, get into the program I applied a few times and just looking for any feedback or any insight that you all can provide for me but of course faculty meet all the time so they're all talking about this one person who's reaching out trying to get into the program and so. It definitely wasn't the most tasteful approach, but I think for me, it, um, it, it appealed in some way because they recognized that I was really interested and really passionate and really um, encouraged to get into the program. So I did end up having a meeting with a program director at the time, and he had me audit two classes. And once I performed well on those, they, were, they interviewed me and accepted me into the program um, in that third application cycle, thankfully. But I think for me, it's what are the things that you're willing to let go of and accept the failure in that, so to speak, or one of the things that you're actually not willing to accept the failure in and that you want to proceed and kind of move forward with. Um, like I mentioned, it, it was definitely daunting and I could have given up at any point, but I feel like it was daunting in a way that I knew that there was going to be, I knew that I was going to get to the point that I wanted. So I don't know how I knew that, but in thinking about like medical school, that path that I was originally trying to go on, it was daunting and I didn't want to pursue it anymore. Like it got to the point where I was like, okay, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't, it's obviously not for me, but I didn't feel that way with MHA. Something about it just really connected with me and I knew that I had to move forward with it. Um, so that was, it, it wasn't necessarily a failure because I did get through it, but I think in the moment 
I was like, I was like, okay, what else do I need to do in order for me to move past this? And I also could have implicated my whole application journey altogether, given how all those, you know, all the faculty members kind of got together and was like, I was brought up as a point of conversation in the approach that I took in trying to communicate with them and try to get feedback or insight from them about my application. So I'll say for me personally, I love a good story of perseverance. Um, and you know, when, when success, failure is not an option, right? So right. you're just going to push it through. Um, and I'll, I'll connect that, you know, most of our listeners are probably not in a school application process, but a lot of them are, are probably most definitely in some stage of a job application process. Right. And I think that same story and that same perseverance um, resonates with, you know, with anybody searching for new opportunities, new jobs, et cetera. Um, I, I tend to be in the mindset very similarly. Like when I do find a job or an opportunity, um, even now that I've moved into my own business, I mean, when I find a client that I just like, I'm going to help you. You just don't know it yet. Right. Right. And having that same perseverance. Um, so yet yeah, for our listeners, when you find an opportunity or something you truly want, you have to have that mindset, just like uh, Natalie shares, like, failure is not an option. I will have this job or I will complete this project or I will work with this client. And that's exactly, you know, what I think pushes and creates success over the long term. And if you don't succeed in that opportunity, just that that strength, that muscle that you build right. to persevere is going to come back sometime. So, right. Absolutely. All right, perfect. No, I, I love that. And just wanted to connect the dots as uh, as our audience listens to that. Um, I, I'm going to dig you about the dark place and this next question now. And, and Natalie, I would love if you could share with our quality people a tip, tool, or tactic that you found works really well for um, for building intimate connections on the teams that you lead. Share with us what it is and how do you apply it? Yeah, so one of the first projects that I worked on, or one of the first big projects that I worked on when I was a fellow in, in healthcare quality back in South Carolina, um, was with um, an institute of psychiatry. So it was a standalone um, inpatient psychiatric, psychiatric facility at the organization's health system. And I was brought in, this is a team that's new to me, I never met them before, this is like my first couple months in the fellowship, my first couple weeks actually. Um, and they have, they have no idea who I am. They have no idea um, or loosely know what a fellow is. So it's, it's all very new to both of us. And I think for me, what really helped was the um, executive champion that kind of brought me into the project, let me know that it was not my job to know everything that they do. Like this is, this is their facility, this is their department. They know exactly how things run and how things should run. It's for you to come in and kind of provide them with the framework and the tools to, to help them see how things may not be working um, from the outside looking in. So internally, you, you know, when you're doing your day-to-day -day work, um, you may not notice the things that people on the outside are noticing or the impact that it's having to those on the outside as well. So I think for me, it was around how do you bring a team together, especially a team that has, knows nothing about you. So we started one of our first meetings with like a four-hour working session of just letting them, like I set up the questions, we set up the framework and just letting them speak, letting them highlight their pain points, letting them highlight their challenges, letting them highlight the things that they wish to see um, change in their, in, their in their working space and in their facility. Um, and they're also using that information to tie it back to the issue that was ultimately at hand. So that way they can see how they're correlated and how if one thing doesn't get addressed or how these, if these things don't get addressed, it's actually impacting their work output or it's actually impacting some of the processes that they have in place that may not be functioning as well as they should. Um, so I think for me that um, that takeaway was 
letting the team be the experts in their own right, because like I mentioned earlier, I can't know everything. It's not my job to know everything. These individuals were hired and brought in because they're competent, they know what they're doing, and they've been doing it well for X number of years. And because there's a problem or because there's an issue that's being recognized doesn't mean that I have all the answers. They have the answers, they're just not sure how to implement it, they're just not sure how to apply that, or they're just not sure what resources to apply to those, um, to those solutions. And so that was, I think that's one of the biggest things that I always take, that I always bring back in any space that I'm in, especially when I'm engaging with a new group of people is find out what it is that they're doing, what's working well for them, what's not working well for them, then present them with the issue and kind of create the, the connecting the dots, like you say, um, to help them see where those things align so that way they can have ownership, they can feel empowered, they can feel connected to the, to the solutions and they can feel connected to the work as well. So it doesn't feel like I'm just coming in and saying, you have to do this, you have to do that they feel like this is, you know, this is their baby that they can ultimately take and run. Because after the project stands up and is, and is running smoothly, I'm not going to be here. It's really them that's going to carry it, carry it on to fruition and through the end. Yeah, and that, that, I mean, ultimately, that ownership, I think, is one of the biggest things is, at least for me, very early in my career path, I struggle mm-hmm. with it. And, yeah. and I'm so intimately connected with so many different projects that I work on that it's almost like I, I have to give my baby away. Yeah. Um, and so I will say that's one of the things I struggled with early in my career. I got much, much better um, as I've grown. I'm just curious. I mean, it sounds like that was still even an early spot for you in your career. How how do you do it now? I mean, are you do you feel more comfortable doing those handoffs and those putbacks? And and ultimately, where I'd love to go with this question is just holding people accountable to getting things done. I mean, especially as a COO now, mm-hmm. um, any any tips that just would will resonate for our, our emerging leaders that are still kind of working through their own process to yeah. figure that out? Yeah, so I'll start with the handoff. I think it get, it, it's gotten easier over time, but it's still a struggle for me too. Cause again, I like to see things end to end and sometimes that's not always possible. Um, but I think for me, it's, if I come into it with like the with the with like a framework or like a time frame or some sort of um, outline in, in place where I, I can identify what where the point of handoff will take place. Once we get there, it's it's easier for me to accept and easier for me to let go. Versus like oh now 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 it's over now I have to turn it back over to someone else for them to take it on and run. Um, I think that that helps me a lot by providing structure around when that handoff will take place or what's the appropriate milestone marker for that. As far as holding the team members accountable, that's also something that I'm still um, working on. Um, I think for me, I've had really, really great leaders, which has helped me in wanting to be a great leader myself. Um, some of the things that I've gotten from some of the best leaders that I've had are setting my boundaries in and out, in and out of the workplace. Um, and also, like I mentioned earlier, for me, it's, it's about leading by example. So anything that I hold the team to, I want to make sure that I'm participating in the same way. Again, it's going to be a little bit of a different dynamic, but I also want them to see that I'm not just telling you to do this because I need because I want you to do this from like a powership or or um, hierarchy perspective, but because it's important to the organization, I want to show you how that impacts or influences my work as well, but also show you how my work fits into the same work that you're doing too. So, for example, we do um, we have a weekly team meeting where we kind of go through our um, project board or project dashboard, and I have a project dashboard myself. Even though sometimes my some of my work may be a little bit more high level, I still want to show them that. I'm doing the same. I'm doing the same level of preparation for these meetings as you are. So no one is no one is above or below the the work that you're being asked to do. Um, there's also some a level of kind of a granular accountability, like on a one one on one basis. I think I've gotten a little bit better with that as well, as far as keeping track of the things that individuals say that they're going to do, 
or that they're going to follow up on and making sure that I, I follow up with them on those things as well because it could easily get um, fall through the cracks or get lost in the get lost in the mix um, so it's I think it's an ongoing process I think for me like I mentioned documentation I'm, I'm very big about documentation I love a paper trail <laughs> um, and so that definitely helps keep keep me on track for keeping people accountable and so in those meetings like I mentioned we have those dashboards where we can literally see the work that, you, that you're doing but also on a more day-to-day -day basis I can keep track of things that people say that they're going to do or in, in conversations that we have in meetings and use that as a tool for me to be able to follow up I think follow-up is definitely a skill and an art that um, not many or not a lot of people have or are really good at and refined at, and it's something that's ongoing uh, work for me. But I think that definitely helps with accountability too, especially when people know that you are gonna be checking back in. And at, at this early stage, I think that's important. I think once we grow and as we scale, it may be more a little bit more difficult to do that for every single employee and every single team member, but at least that mindset has been kind of set into the company from the very beginning. So developing that culture of accountability across the board, I think is super important. Very fantastic. I love it. Um, let me move into the next question here. And, and with this one, I love if you could share with us one of the best aha moments that you've had as a healthcare leader. But again, you know, give us the background and the story. Um, how did the idea strike you? But most importantly, if you were able to turn it into a professional or a personal success. Yep. So um, I feel like I, a lot of my lessons were at the very, very beginning. So this was during grad school, actually during um, one of the Nazi case competitions. I did it both years. Um, and my aha, I would summarize as being that it's okay to not know all the answers. And I think that's kind of been a thread that I've been uh, kind of giving in some of my other responses as well. But I think for me, there's one in art to, to sharing the fact that you may not know the answer, but also how do you bounce back from that? Um, and then two, there's also um, to a certain extent in art in kind of faking it until like faking it until you make it um, without being uh, misleading. So. I don't like there may be certain settings where I'm not going to say, oh, I don't know. I'm just going to sit there like, I don't know. I don't I don't know what's going on here. But there's a way to kind of say that in a softer or a gentler way and say, you know, I didn't really think about it that way. I haven't looked into it in the way that you describe, but let me get back to you. And I think the where the um, the validation for that comes in is in that follow up. So if you do say you're going to check into that or look into that, make sure you get back to them and say, hey, I, you know, you asked me this question, this is what I found out and here's how I think we should approach it moving forward. I think some people just say, hey, I don't know about that, but I'll check into it and kind of leave it at that. And it's just kind of like, okay, what do you, like, are you really gonna look into it um, truly? But I think also for someone like me, where, like I mentioned earlier, I, I wanna know how to do things and I wanna know how to get to the end goal, get to the answer, get to the solution. And sometimes that's not always the case or that's not always feasible. I think um, in that, the lesson that I got from that was, um, absorbing the resources around you and being able to identify what those resources are. So for me, anytime I start a new job or anytime I start in a new environment, I'm always keeping a list of questions, find, trying to find out who people are, what it, what it is that they do, because you just never know who you're going to need and what you're going to need them for. So in my um, previous job, I had, I love spreadsheets, so I love Excel. So I always had a spreadsheet of uh, contacts and resources. So every time I meet somebody, every time I'd be in a meeting with someone and I can kind of get some context on the conversation of what it is that they do or what they have to offer, I jot it down just as an FYI for myself. And there are more times than not where I ended up having to reach out to at least that individual, um, at least once for information or for um, uh, questions that I may have had or for clarification on things. It might not have been like a full-fledged, like I need you know their assistance on a project or a long-term engagement, but it's always helpful to have that on hand so that way you're not 
wasting a lot of time trying to find the answers to those things that you don't have the answers for. It's really easy to identify those resources. And also just being not being afraid to leverage those resources, like I mentioned. So once you identify the resources, once you know who's around you, use them, like find them, reach out to them, talk to them, engage with them. So that way, you know, you're both making the best of both of your time. All right. Nope. I, I love it. I love that you're learning early in your career path as well. Um, I, I just saw something posted uh, not too long, maybe earlier this morning that was like, um, I, oh, I'm going to mess it up now right here on the spot. I, I can't even think <laughs> of exactly what it was, but it was essentially like, I learn, I make mistakes to learn fast. And right now I'm a genius in mistakes or some, something along mm-hmm. the line, but it's not going to resonate. I'm horrible at trying to remember things <laughs> on the spot. So I'm just going to probably cut that out of this conversation. <laughs> Um, no, uh, Natalie, let me, let me ask you this though. Um, I've had, again, the opportunity to have some fellow Nazi members on the podcast. And again, I'm slowly approaching my time where I will be the incoming president for our chapter here in Atlanta. Um, you've mentioned your experience with the case competitions two years in a row, which is almost unheard of in in and of itself. Um, could you highlight what the case competition is and just, again, introduce some of our listeners if they're not familiar what that is, and again, why it's so important. I mean, I think it's one of the most important things we could do for young leaders um, at their respective times and their journeys, but just curious to hear, you know, how has that, you know, supported you? Yeah, I think for me, um, one, it took me out of my comfort zone. I was not, I saw the call for case competition participants for, to represent our school. I ignored it. I threw it in the trash. I was not interested. Um, you know, cause this was, this was the, the healthcare administration was very new to me. Like this was in like the first couple of days of us starting um, in the program where this kind of call out for team members was sent out via email. Um, but it wasn't until the program director, the same person who I spoke to about earlier, who kind of helped shepherd me into the program. He said, if I didn't nominate myself, that he would nominate for me. And so I was like, okay, I don't want it to get to the point where he has to do it. So let me just go ahead and do it myself. But I think for me, it definitely took me out of my comfort zone and definitely helped me develop a level of confidence that I probably otherwise would have taken me a little bit longer to get there. I want to say I would never have gotten there, but definitely would have taken me a little bit longer to get there. Um, and also, I think the big other big thing for me is, uh, well, there's three things. So the level of confidence that it helped me develop, the visibility of or just seeing how many other people that look like me and what they're doing in healthcare, I was mind blown. I had never seen anything like that in my life. And it was just like, everyone here is like doing like doing things that I would have never I would have never imagined I could potentially do I mean I always said you know the the bar is always high for myself I'm always putting a super amount of pressure on myself but I just I just saw people all across the spectrum of healthcare from um on the ground workers people who work um or manage EVS teams people who are nurses people who are doctors people who are administrators executives running health systems consultants entrepreneurs etc it was just so breathtaking to see uh, people look like me doing a whole or touching the whole full spectrum of healthcare in all kinds of cool ways. Um, And then the third thing is the network that I developed. So all the people that I competed in the case competition with were all still cool. Um, Yeah, it was competition in the moment, but uh, we quickly got over it after the fact. And it's it's so great to like have a network all across the country. Now one of my friends is actually overseas. Uh, in Dubai working for Cleveland Clinic. So it's, it's just really cool to see like how vast like the NASI network is across the country. And for those who aren't familiar with the case competition or NASI, so NASI is the National Association for Health Services Executives. And the organization is to help promote minorities and executives in healthcare and, and the healthcare space and um, to promote 
um, leadership in that avenue as well. But the case competition specifically, the Everett B. Fox student case competition, um, it is for uh, graduate students, whether they're an MHA or sometimes MPH as well, or MBA if they have a healthcare concentration. Um, those students, whether they're in their first or second year, get to participate. And the case uh, competition committee, which I'm on as well, we develop the actual case. So the case is developed by us as well as the organization that's sponsoring the case competition. And we, we come up with a realistic, but sometimes hypothetical scenario that um, the students are then charged to present themselves as consultants to be able to resolve. Um, so we've had, case, we've had cases in, in regards to addressing homelessness, um, in, in regards to creating like a, um, a patient-centered medical home to, uh, type environment, a vast variety of things that we see in healthcare, both still happening or still challenges today, but also things that may, may, be, more, um, may be more mature now after it's been a couple of years since those cases have been put out there. But I think for the case competition, it's, it's been really insightful because you get to really apply what you're learning in school into an almost real world experience or real world type application. And then also the, the judges are individuals that are like in these organizations or that have these levels of expertise or know exactly what it is that you may be proposing or able to ask questions that really align with what the case is as well as their real world experience. Um, but I also just think the learning that you get from it is super, uh, like it's unmatched. Like you have a very short window of time to read, understand, try to think of questions and then actually address and prepare for the case. And so there's a lot, um, a lot of pressure in that space, especially given the time frame that Nazi's case competition happens. It's usually around midterms and it's also in the thick of fellowship applications. So there's a lot that students typically have to juggle when they're doing the case competition itself but definitely worth it. Do not let the, um, the, the effort that goes behind it scare you away because it truly is worth it. Trust me, I was juggling working full-time, grad school in the evenings, and then trying to find a couple hours here and there to prepare for the case competition, but definitely, definitely, definitely worth it. Um, NASI as an organization is such a great support. I've, I mean, I've, I've found myself in spaces that I didn't think that I would be able to because of NASI or even just my willingness or my um, passion and wanting to give back to the organization in volunteering as I am is because of the case competition and what I saw um, as a potential for the organization. So definitely encourage any of those that are listening who are in grad school and um, their school is calling for participants in the NASA case competition, please definitely consider that because it really is a great opportunity for you as a student and also you as a future um, careerist, um, no matter what stage you are in your professional development. Yeah, no, I'll, I mean, Everything you said there was flawless with the experience and the value created from, from a program like what they're doing at NASI. And I, I believe, I mean, the, the one for this year is coming up next month, I think. Yep. Um, where you started, you, you know, that entire share that you just shared um, is it made you uncomfortable. And that's been kind of this interesting rolling theme with, um, you know, yourself now and a few of the most recent guests that have come onto the podcast is, and it just sticks out to me, obviously I'm the constant being the host is, you know, putting ourselves as leaders in positions that, you know, force us to think different, be different, force us to be a little bit uncomfortable and then bring our experiences and our talents to solve problems or to push the industry further. Um, I just wanted to pinpoint that again for our audience um, as they continue to listen, but it's been a growing theme with a number of guests that have been on recently. And I just love that you naturally started there with, with your experience. Yep. So, 
Um, perfect. Um, next question I have for you. What are some current changes taking place across the healthcare industry today that you're personally excited about? And then what role do you see quality professionals and other healthcare leaders playing to uh, support it or to uh, just make sure that it gets full longevity? Yeah, I'm definitely very excited about um, the digital health space or how technology and innovation in technology is being kind of embraced a little bit more widely in healthcare. Of course, with the pandemic, we've seen um, with telehealth, how that's been a lot more widely adopted by organizations that may have had some resistances or hesitations in um, going full-fledged with telehealth, but also in some of the um, regulations around telehealth as, as well. I think that's been interesting to see how some of those things that were really rigid before have now been a little bit more flex in light of the pandemic. But I think for the role that I see quality professionals or other leaders playing is in, there's a level of, um, I know that change is hard in healthcare. I know that change is definitely hard anywhere in any industry, but I know specifically in healthcare, um, people tend to say that healthcare is a little behind, which is interesting because it's one of the most innovative spaces that I can think of, but I can understand why that, that mindset comes into place. But I think there's, um, there's going to be a lot more, there's going to need to be a lot more openness to innovation and being creative about what innovation looks like in the healthcare space. And so just thinking about our company, MedHall, like organizations understand that there is an issue with no-show rates or readmission rates, but may not under, necessarily understand the connection that is to the lack of transportation or the lack of quality or reliable transportation to their patients, which is, where, which is what we're helping to highlight and helping to close the gap on. And so there's a lot of these different things especially when we're thinking about health equity and thinking about social determinants of health and all these other kind of um, hot ticket names that people are using is there are solutions in place or there are innovative options in place that can help address some of these things for their organizations, but we just have to get out of the traditional way of thinking about them and kind of open our eyes to the wide variety and the wide scope of potential that these other areas have or these other solutions may have, even though it may require some level of change I think we are not in a position to be resistant to change. And I know healthcare is constantly changing. So it's always interesting to see that kind of uh, dynamic of always and being in an always and ever changing industry, but also being in a, in a space where change is very resistant to happen in certain spaces. Um, I think there's definitely gonna need to be a more open and more of a willingness to adopt different kinds of innovation outside of what we may typically see in like medical device or EMR spaces, et cetera. Like there's innovation and technology um, enhancements or solutions that can come outside of those spaces that can be beneficial if the time is taken and there's really a lot of thought put into how this could benefit both the organization and the patient. Uh, I love that. And, and really that's the perfect setup for the next question because to your point, I mean, everything, especially pandemic driven is changing healthcare. Um, digital technologies and digital, you know, strategies coming now, at least from my experience, Natalie, you know, now faster than ever before in the 15 years I've been in healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, what are some things that the healthcare industry itself needs to do to just become a more attractive place that will attract, whether they're quality professionals? I mean, really, a lot of these skills are going to take place even beyond your traditional healthcare skill sets. Right. Um, but do you see, just have any thoughts on it, I guess, um, just things that the industry needs to do to be able to attract the right types of leaders that can help push for this new type of change that's coming? Yeah, I think, and this may just be from my experience specifically, but I think um, as someone who was in the job market and trying to find my space, knowing that I was worthy and that I had a lot to offer any organization in the healthcare space, 
I think the recruitment process is, is quite challenging, especially when there are non, uh, like not, not necessarily non-application related criteria that gets applied to like the recruitment process. But I think um, for me, I would say that I've kind of let go of the fact that I'm looking at, like I've kind of let go of looking at titles as like my go-to for looking for jobs. I think you can have a title that says anything and it can mean anything, especially when you go from organization to organization. I think it really gets down to what is what is the work that's being done and how does that align with this particular candidate? I think sometimes um, it gets down to like a title for title matchup, like, oh, you don't have manager in your title. You don't have director in your title. So you can't be qualified for this kind of role. But then it's like, well, where does upward progression take place then? Or where does development take place? Because everyone can't be 100% everything that you need for this particular role. There has to be room for growth and has to be room for, for learning. So I think more grace in that area would be would definitely uh, help attract more quality and more um, competent individuals and more talented individuals and a more diverse pool of individuals as well. Um, because there's a lot of people, like you said, that are doing a lot of great things that just may not have had that opportunity because of their title isn't, isn't the right title or isn't the right fit. Um, but I think if you look down at the skill set that they have and also look down at the actual job responsibilities that's being looked for, there can be a one-to-one -one match, even if they're not at the level that you perceive them to be for that particular role. Um, I also think that professional development um, is, is definitely a big attractor. It was for me, it was for me specifically for the fellowship. Like I was looking for an organization and a program that would support me in that way, both financially, but also with my time to know that, hey, I'm not going to be in the office because I'm going to this conference. Or I'm not going to be in the office because I'm getting, you know, this training or getting sitting for this exam. So I think that's going to be helpful as well. And I think some organizations may be uh, resistant to that, but there is also uh, kind of a downstream benefit to the organization because now you have a, a stronger individual, a more competent individual, someone who feels supported by the organization outside of their specific role, but as a whole individual. Um, and then also the fact that they're more likely to stay with the organization. So they don't have to worry about retraining or rehiring or constant turnover um, because they're that level of loyalty, so to speak, because of what the organization has done to support that individual. Um, so there's a lot of things. I don't think there's a perfect answer for it. I think it depends on organization by organization and what their recruiting strategy is like. But I definitely think that um, a little bit more grace in the, the kind of title for title matchup and also in what their offerings are for professional development. Um, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of room for creativity in that, in that avenue, especially if conversation isn't always something that can be moved. It can't be adjusted as much. I am always looking for other ways to um, kind of negotiate outside of compensation as well, if that's not something that the needle could be moved on. So professional development is definitely big for me. All right, that's huge. And I'll, I'll say just even as you share those thoughts. Um, so for me, I did my MHA at uh, UNC. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I'd have to imagine similar with your MHA experience, they do push the title mindset, you yep. know, you got to be a director, you got to be you know, a COO, a CEO, or, you know, they, they put titles mm -hmm. and that's what they, that's what they attract us with, which is not a bad thing, but to yep. your point, how do we start to get more into, you gotta be in a role that's going to leverage your strengths, your talent. These roles are focused on digital transformations. These roles are fo focused on, right. you know, big picture analytics or whatever the case may be, strategy development or whatever the case. Um, so I think a lot of that comes back even to, uh, you know, master's programs or, anything else. So I just want to, I love what you shared and, and it even made me think 
how, I mean, and UNC does a great job of keeping mm -hmm. us all in tune and, you know, sharing information about promotion opportunities, but it is still title driven. And so it is. interesting, interesting thing you highlighted there. Yeah, it definitely is still title driven. So I don't want people to be, you know, ignorant to that fact because it is important, unfortunately, still. Um, but I also just want people to know, like, don't always just look at the title and say, oh, yeah, that's the job that I want. I actually dig into what the role is going to be and what kind of impact you, you can potentially have in that space and then decide if that's the job that's for you. Well, and especially if you're in a startup environment, I mean, a yeah. COO is Titles really a, a COO. <laughs> you're a C, you're the CMO. You're, right. You know, I've learned just through my own, you know, growing my business right now, uh, Natalie, you know, to be the CEO just means you're the chief everything officer. And right. so, you know, you do it all. So yeah, titles are, you know, what's in the title? A rose is right. rose, right? Yeah. Uh, perfect. <laughs> no, Natalie, this is, this is great. Uh, you're sharing a lot of great information. I, I do want to move us into a part of this conversation that I call the two minute drill. Um, it's kind of a throwback to my old football plan days, mm. but um, I always love to check in with my guests before we jump into it and just make sure you're ready to rock and roll. Cool. Sounds good. All right. So this next question is something of a two-parter where I'd love for you to first tell our quality people something about your current role that inspires you to do your best, but then also share with us, how do you inspire others in your organization? Um, inspires me to do my best. I think for me, because the work that we're doing so closely impacts patients, like we have to get it right. Otherwise, someone gets left behind, like literally someone gets left behind. And so I think knowing that and having that um, more kind of one-to-one -one direct access as far as being able to um, influence or um, impact someone's uh, clinical, you know, clinical, uh, uh, what am I trying to say? Clinical journey or even just their overall healthcare by having transportation access to their services is really important to me. Um, so I think that's, that's one of the main things that influences my, um, inspires me to do my best at work is knowing that there are little people depending on our services. Um, we, get, we get inbound inquiries from people all the time saying, hey, I need a ride to this. And we hear stories, heartbreaking stories all the time of patients sometimes even declining care because they're afraid that they won't have a way to get back home. So they just rather not be seen at all. Or people that just continue to, they just delay their care because they don't have any other option but to wait until they can get that specific piece of transportation or access to transportation to their services. So that definitely keeps me going and inspires me to want to um, be my best at work. And then how I inspire others within the organization. I think we all um, we all join because we all um, we all support the mission of the organization and we all support the work that's being done like I just alluded to earlier. Um, I think it's hard to, to hear what we're doing and, and not see how it's important. Um, again, everyone may not connect to it in the same ways, but I think we all, everyone on the team kind of recognizes the importance of, what the, of the work that we're doing and how each of their um, kind of skill sets plays into that, whether it's someone who's working on our technology and our product versus someone who's doing customer support, someone who's helping to you know, manage our, our network of transportation providers, et cetera. Everyone plays a role and all connects to how we get those patients to and from those medical appointments to ensure that they're getting the best care possible. Um, and I think the, the, the way that we hire and kind of onboard our team helps with that and makes that a lot easier. So we don't have to do a lot of convincing of uh, being inspirational to others. I think they all get that kind of upfront during the recruiting process and have all bought into the bought into that same ideal and to, into our mission of the organization as well. Wonderful. And what is the best piece of career advice that you've ever received? 
Um, so I would say, um, and I, I'm not going to quote this accurately either, but it was something to the effect, and again, this was in my fellowship that one of the leaders, uh, the COO at the time told, uh, was telling a, a group of us in the meeting, is that saying that we'll get it right the next time for an organization can be dangerous. And I think what the, the, the message behind that was, yes, everything is not always going to be perfect, but if you're always planning for the, uh, or always depending on the false promise of tomorrow, you're, in, you're always going to be in constant state of like, we'll just fix it later, we'll just fix it later. But when are we going to spend the time to prepare or to, to plan? Because planning takes definitely takes a lot of time, but it's the most important stage of any process, I think, um, because then you can kind of see how things can play out. You can kind of identify some of the risk factors down the line. You can also kind of play out some of the um, different scenarios, best case, worst case, whatever the, the, the situation may be. So I think, like I mentioned, trying to always depending on the fact that we can fix it tomorrow, we can change it tomorrow, because tomorrow is not always promised and you may not always get that opportunity to make that change. So if you have the space, you have the opportunity to make it right or make it as right as you can right now, then I definitely say do so. Um, put the effort, put the time in and prepare and plan as best you can. Lynette, I've never heard that quote before, but when you said it, like, the quality improvement person in me yep. like took a shot. I was like, no, you got to fix it now. But the business owner in me was like, no, you got to fix it now because you don't know. You're like, now might be the only chance. Right. So, um, no, it's interesting. I, I'm, I'm going to have to come back and write that one down when I listen to this <laughs> show before putting it out. I love that. Um, next, uh, next question I have for you. If you could trade jobs with anyone in your organization, with whom would it be and why? Surprisingly, I think it would be our, we just hired a head of engineering and I've really gotten into like the technology and product, like I'm really interested in it now. Um, I've always been interested in it loosely. Like I used to volunteer before I moved out of Memphis uh, for the fellowship a couple of years ago. I volunteered with Black Girls Code, um, which has helped, you know, young minority girls get into coding, get into technology. And I was always fascinated by it. But I think I've learned a lot about technology and I've, I'm, it's not as, daunting as I thought it would be. It's really fun. It's definitely a lot of new jargon, just as being in the startup space is a lot of new jargon um, that was I had to learn as well. But it's just so interesting to see how like a business process can be translated into a technology product or how one influences the other. Um, and it's just so cool to see things come to life. So we have an idea, we talk about it, our designers lay it out, we test it, and then it's, it's real, like it, it's really there. So I'm really, I would, I would love to trade places with them kind of like, um, I think I just want to like get all, I just want their brain for like a couple hours or a couple of days out of the month. Um, Cause they're just so sharp and just so like forward thinking too. Sometimes for the forward thinking can get a little too ahead um, in some cases, but I think it's always interesting to see how their wheels turn when we're talking about a business or an operational process and how they translate that to, into the technology. So that's really, really awesome. And I would love to have that kind of mindset, um, at least part-time. All right. Now that, that's impressive to hear. I was going to say, make sure you guys don't lose any ideas that they're spitting out. I know. <laughs> a big parking lot for everything. Oh, yeah. Years we do. from we... now, they're going to be like, you called this two years ago. <laughs> we just talked about that. We're all, we always want everyone on the team to put their ideas down. So we always have it. Nobody should be leaving here with thoughts in their minds. We need it all down. Like I said, documentation and paper trail. Um, uh, I'm completely off script with this one, but uh, yeah. Natalie, I just came across um, a really cool, I don't, it's, it's an app, it's a website that helps you manage all, a lot of big picture projects and big picture strategies called mm -hmm. Notion. Um, I, I'd recommend check it out. It might be a really good fit for the things you guys are doing, just based on what you shared, okay. uh, especially if a lot of moving parts and a lot of detailed strategies and ideas, especially. 
yeah. future stuff. Um, I'm loving it so far. I've been on it for about a month now. Okay. It's helping me get really organized with the work that I'm doing. Cool. Yeah, I'm always open to looking into like new tools and products that help keep us efficient and organized. So I'll definitely look into it. All right, perfect. Um, next question I have for you, just to get back on script. Um, could you share with us a personal habit that contributes to your success when leading quality improvement or any other type of initiatives that you work on? Yeah, I think um, I think for me, getting a baseline of like where I'm starting from in projects is really helpful because then I can really measure. Um, you can't um, you can't what they say you can't improve what you can't measure. Um, so I'm always a bigger on measurement and uh, having data support my work. So I always want to find a baseline. So where are we starting from? What are those What are those things that are important to us for this project? Like why is this project even being brought up? Because then you can really identify what those markers are and like kind of where we stand with those markers and then be able to really see how it's changed or been influenced with the project over time. Um, I think for, um, yeah, I think that's, that's I think that would be the, the one thing I would say is having a baseline. Because sometimes it's, it's easy to jump and say, okay, that's not working well, let's just go ahead and fix it. And then you get to the point of fixing it, but you're not really sure like how much did you fix it or is it all the way, is, you know, is it completely resolved or are we gonna have to revisit this in a while? Sometimes you do have to revisit or reevaluate, but if you don't have any kind of quantitative, um, stance or information behind it, it's really hard to see what those markers are, what that what that improvement even looks like. All right, perfect. And yeah, a lot of the teams that I get a chance to work with, um, they'll tell you I probably use that line more than anything. Can we mm -hmm. measure it? Nope. Yeah. We'll go back. We're we're not even gonna worry. Yeah. We're not talking about it. We're not working on it until you show me that we can measure it. So yeah. Um so perfect. That that just holds true for me. That's life. Um <laughs> See, this, this is where I knew I got off script. So my next question for you, Natalie, uh, could you share with us a go-to website or mobile application that helps you uh, execute on the work that you lead, even though I've already shared with you one that I think could be of help, you know, so that was a freebie way off script, but that's my official next question for you. Yeah, so um, I'm going to say two. Um, so we use Slack for day-to-day -day communication. It's It can be annoying sometimes because we do have a lot of um, Slack channels that we've kind of carved out, but I think it's been really helpful to organize our thoughts and also for like really quick communication thing or, you know, communication ideas or quick passes or quick questions that we have to get to or get addressed outside of like formal meetings. Um, I, I don't like a lot of meetings. I have a lot of meetings, but I'd rather not sometimes. And I think there are some things that can just easily be answered really quickly if you just phrase it the right way, et cetera. But some things you do have to talk through. Um, but Slack definitely for those kind of offhand communication items or just sharing things really quickly. And then we, we actually use Asana for our like project management um, stuff. So that's been working well. That's the only um, kind of formal or long-term project management tool that I've used so far in my career. Um, so I'd say Asana has been working pretty well for us. Um, we can organize it like by functional area. Um, we have assignments for um, like people can be assigned to specific projects that I think is great because it helps with that accountability piece. Um, due dates, we can add progress notes, attachments, et cetera. We can also connect it to our calendars or connect it to, to other uh, tools that we use as well. So I think that's been working pretty well for us too. Okay, awesome. Love that. And um, could you share with the quality people a professional society and a professional conference that you think would be a value at? Yeah, so the, da, 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 da. Hmm. well, it's going to be between NASI and um, National Association of Healthcare Quality. Um, I went to the uh, NEHQ conference for the first time virtually during the pandemic, actually, the uh, last year. And that was really cool, even in the virtual setting, like their sessions were spot on and just really, really great. 
And um, I think it, it was, I also made a lot of great connections, even though it was virtual. Like it was a lot of great, the way they had their chat set up was really cool. Cause as the speakers were presenting, I, I think they were pre-recorded, but as the speakers presentations were going, people were having conversations and then they had the, the live chat or the live Q and A with the presenters as well. So there was a good dynamic or mix of being able to talk while the, speak, while the speakers were talking, which in a live setting probably couldn't do in the same way. But also like as you're having that conversation, when it's time for the Q&A, you can pull and say, hey, I noticed that so-and-so brought this up and it sparked this question in my mind. Or I heard you say this in your presentation. Can you elaborate on this a little bit more? So I think that format was really, really cool. So I say NACU for the conference and I say NACI, of course, for the professional society, specifically for those that are um, minority or African-American or Black. Um, and then I'm going to say another professional society because I don't want to, I know you get NACI a lot, people that you talk to about NACI. Um, I think IHI is a really good organization too, that I, I've gotten a lot of my preliminary healthcare quality, like um, I've done some of their little like certificate uh, modules um, in the beginning of my fellowship, just kind of get my, my mind wrapped around some of the quality um, related concepts. So I say IHI as well, as definitely as a resource, there's a lot of free, 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 free resources out there that you can use, a lot of free modules that you can tap into. And then of course, becoming a member of the, of the organization and then um, accessing some of the other paid materials as well. All right, perfect. All great, great recommendations. Love each one of them. Um, if you could recommend one book to our quality people, what would it be and why? My favorite book, shout out to grad school for this, but it would be Checklist Manifesto by uh, Dr. Tugawande. Um, I'm, I'm a checklist person. I, need, I love a good list. I love crossing off things on my to-do list, even though sometimes things get added as I cross things off. But I also think the purpose of the book was not only just highlighting how cool checklists could be, but um, just thinking about the mindset of we are, we all know what we're doing. We're all competent in what we're doing, but sometimes things fall through the crack, or sometimes we forget. And how much do we want to rely on our memory or on muscle memory versus a documented kind of script for us to go off of? And what are the situations where one versus the other is more applicable? So I think that book really, um, for me, kind of had me rethink or reevaluate what are the areas of professional or personal where I, I'm always relying on like my muscle memory or relying on my memory or like my competence to keep me going and to make sure that I don't miss anything versus things that I know. I know what I'm doing, but I, I do need a checklist because if any of these things go wrong, things can go really, really wrong. So whether it's regarding um, actual life of a patient or whether it's regarding the breaking of a system or some, something in our technology failing, are those things that actually need a checklist? Because if any of those things go wrong, something bad is gonna happen. Or are there things that are like, hey, something goes wrong, we can just discuss it and kind of fix it or come up with a solution after the fact. Sometimes one is better than the other, but I think it's good to understand the scenarios where either of those applies. Perfect, love it. And our last question, um, let me give the heads up, Natalie, this is a personal favorite because I am gonna get you to reflect on your past while you look forward to your future. So let's say that you're able to send yourself one text message to yourself 10 years into the past and one text message to yourself 10 years into the future. Take a second and think about it, but what would you communicate in each one of those messages? Hmm. So 10 years ago would be 2011. Um, so I was in my last year of undergrad. <laughs> Wild times. Um, 10 years in the past, I would say trust your, trust your gut. Because like I knew, like I mentioned before about uh, the med school path, I knew that it wasn't, it wasn't challenging or it wasn't um, challenging in the way that um, getting into grad school was a challenge, but I was really excited to kind of persevere through that. 
it was very daunting in a very negative way for me. But I think I, I didn't know what else I had. To, I didn't know what other options I had. And so I just kept going down this rabbit hole. So I think for me, just trust, trusting my instinct and not being afraid to pivot is the text message that I would say um, for 10 years ago, 10 years in the past. Um, 10 years into the future, I would say, let me think about this one. That would be 2031. <laughs> 10 years into the future. I guess I would say, remember why you started. Um, and that kind of goes back to the um, question of why that I talked about earlier, but I think 10 years into the future, a lot can change and things change quickly. And I don't always want, I always want to stay true to myself, my morals, my values, but also true to why I'm doing the work that I'm doing, even though my work may pivot. I just always want to understand why it is that I even jumped into the space in the first place, even if it's different from what I, what I was doing 10 years prior or what I will be doing 10 years later. Um, so I'd say, yeah, remember why you're, remember why you, why you're doing this or remember what, what why you started this. Perfect. I love both of those uh, reflections and projections, I guess. Um, so trust your gut, remember your why. I think those are two that that everyone could probably find space for in their thinking. Um, you know, Natalie, I have to give you just, uh, again, a huge amount of props for everything you're doing. Um, just being a healthcare professional, one, has its own, you know, street cred and, and respect <laughs> that comes with it. But to do it in the healthcare startup space, um, you know, the mission for Med Hall, uh, honestly, I think it's tremendous. So, you know, for that, I, I commend you, your team, and just the mission that you're on with that. Um, and I thank you so much just for the time and, you know, chance to connect with you today. Um, before I let you go, I would love if you could just give our quality people that parting piece of advice, um, share with them the best way to follow or connect with you through social media, um, and then we'll officially sign off. Cool. Um, parting piece of advice, I would say, and maybe this is more for early stage quality individuals, individuals that are looking to get into quality, because um, even quality is such a, like there's such a vast variety of opportunities within the quality space um, that I think a lot of people are not privy to. Um, so I would say understand understand the full scope of quality in whatever organization that they're in, whatever organization that they're trying to get into, because it, it will vary from organization to organization. Um, but you also want to be mindful of how it works for whatever environment that you're in. Um, and also, like I, I'm always, I always tell people, be open to opportunity because you just never know, like what you may not have thought would be interesting to you ends up being like you're the, your most favorite thing in the world. So be open to opportunity and understand the full scope of quality in whatever environment that you're in, because um, that may open up doors for you that you probably didn't think existed before. Um, and as far as connecting with me, um, I am on LinkedIn. My name, Natalie Ocean. Uh, there's an H in my first name and two C's in my last name, um, but I'm sure uh, Jarvis will have that in the, in the uh, podcast notes. Um, but yeah, follow me on uh, LinkedIn. Um, I try to keep my personal social media to myself, you know, just create that little boundary we talked about. Um, but yeah, definitely follow me on LinkedIn. I always talk to people that message me out, especially for students. I'm always looking for ways to connect or share resources with them because I try to be the resource that I, that I needed when I was in their, in their space or in their stage. So definitely feel free to reach out to me and I will be as responsive as I possibly can. Um, but yeah, this was great. Thank you so much, Jarvis. Uh, uh, the pleasure is all mine and uh, really, again, appreciate 
all the time, all the insights, and again, just um, pushing for success in everything you do, everything that your team does. So thank you for that. Uh, to our quality people everywhere, thank you all for listening and making us the part of your day. This is Jarvis and Natalie. We're officially signing off. Quality people, thank you so much again for plugging in with today's episode. If you enjoyed it, please feel free to share it using the social media link posted in the notes below. I'd also be very grateful if you could subscribe, give us a rating, and also share feedback on what additional value we can bring to you through this podcast. That helps a lot with our show rankings and also with getting this great content out to healthcare leaders around the world. And if you want to engage with me directly, then please connect with me on LinkedIn, where I share additional resources, access to our QI community, and much more. All right, quality people, thank you again, and I'll see you back here next week when I introduce you to another quality guest.